You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Whites. Greetings and welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. Under starry skies, we return this year to Brooklyn Bridge Park and Photoville 2018. Photoville is a two-week photography festival that features a plethora of gallery shows and exhibitors, most of them situated in repurposed shipping containers. Admission is absolutely free, though donations are greatly appreciated. Once you enter, you can listen in on lectures, watch videos, or learn about taking tintype portraits from the nice folks over at the Penumbra Foundation. There's also a food and beer garden, and photographs are everywhere, but a majority of the exhibitions are housed in shipping containers, and like last year, we wandered about the event speaking with photographers, editors, and exhibit curators. First up, we're going to speak with Michael Lorenzini of the New York City Municipal Archives, who, along with Matthew Minor, organized a show from the archive of the WPA Federal Writers Project. We spoke with Michael about this impressive collection and his thoughts about the mission of the Municipal Archive, which he's been part of for over two decades. We stay in the New York Groove as we speak with teachers and students from two New York City high schools, the High School of Fashion Industries and my alma mater, the High School of Art and Design. We had a chance to talk about their long-standing photography programs and their current exhibit, Telling a Story and Selling an Idea. From there, we head over to an exhibit, Consequencias slash Consequences, which was organized by photographers from Chiapas, Mexico. After a short break, we're going to return with Ron Haviv and Dr. Lauren Walsh of the Seven Foundation exhibit. The focus of our chat is their upcoming film, Biography of a Photo, which traces the impact of two photographs Ron Haviv took early in his career, which have left indelible marks on the countries in which they were taken, not to mention pretty much everybody who's viewed these photographs. Our next stop is the container curated by the Authority Collective and their exhibit, The Lit List. 30 under-the-radar photographers. Here we're going to speak with members of the collective and photographer Arlene Mejarado, whose work is included. And we wrap up this visit to Photoville 2018 by speaking with curator Krista Dix from the Los Angeles-based gallery Wall Space Creative about their exhibit, Internal Ballistics. Let's start with Michael Lorenzini from the New York City Municipal Archives. With Michael Lorenzini with the WPA Archive. We got some amazing black and white photographs that go back decades, uh, specifically from the WPA, which is the 1930s. Is that correct? Yeah, the WPA was part of the Roosevelt New Deal, Depression era ways of battling uh, unemployment. They had a number of different projects, and one of the largest uh, ones that involved the arts was the WPA Federal Writers Project. Now, you said writers, not photographers. Right. So the, uh, there was the Federal Art Project, and there was the Federal Writers Project, um, and there was the Federal Music and Theater and all these things. But uh, the Federal Writers Project had units in uh, all states, which were 48 states at the time, and they had a New York City unit, which was the largest of the units. 
and they collected photographs from the Federal Art Project, uh, and they also had their own staff photographers that they sent out to document. Uh, and a, a lot of those photographs are ones that most people, a lot of people are familiar with. There's some notable photographers. you want to rattle off a few names? Well, I, th I mean, the, in this exhibit, the, the names that people are going to recognize are Dorothea Lange and Bernice Abbott. Um, and we do have a, n a number of Bernice Abbott prints in the, in the collection and a couple of, of Dorothea Lange's. But I think what's interesting about the, the show is a lot of the other photographs are by either we don't know who took them or they're by photographers that the general public hasn't heard, heard of before. How many photographers were there all together? Uh, we have never been able to compile a complete list of all the, all the photographers because, like I said, some of them are, are, not, li are not listed. Um, in, the, in the New York City unit, though, I think we've been able to identify at least two dozen um, photographers in, in that collection. But, uh, they, and then, but then they also collected, like I said, f photographs from the Federal Art Project and from commercial photographers. I think what's interesting is that a lot of these photographs, if you look at them, they're almost snapshots, and they're, they're kind of, you'd even say mundane in many, many ways. They're ordinary. Yet when you look at them, they are a record of, some, of things and people and places that don't exist anymore. And they say an awful lot. You look at one photograph, you're seeing architecture, you're seeing the way people are dressed, you're seeing automobiles, you're seeing uh, occupations that don't even exist anymore. You don't see too many push carts, for no, instance. No. So the inspiration for this show was a 1980s show that was done. Uh, it was edited to, uh, by Barbara Milstein, uh, who was the curator at the uh, Brooklyn Museum for many years. And the original show was 120 images, and it was really just sort of like a grab bag of different types of styles and, and photographers. Um, and when we decided to relook at this and decided maybe it needed a, a, new, a new edit, I mean, one of the things we really wanted to focus on is just WPA photographers, with no commercial photographers, just photographers who were working for the WPA. But also, um, we started to whittle down to a, a certain aesthetic. And what we were really drawn to is this sort of street photography, straight documentary aesthetic because it was so much more truthful and gave you much more of an impression of walking out into 1930s New York City. And also, these were taken at a time when photography was rather unique. These days, I mean, everybody's a photographer. Everyone's taking pictures. But a lot of these photographs here, especially where people are aware of the camera, having a picture taken was more of an event at that point, I think, for some of these people. And some of these people might be the only first time they might have actually been photographed. Um, Could yeah, be. I, it's possible. Yeah, certainly, if you were a, uh, a fish peddler or a push cart vendor or something like that, it probably was not something people were normally taking photographs of. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, you know, the the, the person who's probably the most famous person in this show is Charlie Wagner, who was a famous tattoo artist on the Bowery. So he may have had his photograph taken before, but honestly, I. I I've not seen that many photographs of, uh, even of him, and I know people who've, who've done research. Can you talk a little bit about the, the municipal archives, um, maybe the history of it a bit, uh, the, the size of it, the scope of it, some of the interesting collections you have? Um, well, the, the New York City Municipal Archives is the archive of the city government of New York City, established in the 1950s, and uh, our collections go back to the 1600s, though, to the Dutch colonial era. We have photographic collections dating back to the mid-1800s, uh, but really the, the, the bulk of our collections start around 1900, which is when the city really started using photography to document um, projects that they were involved in. 
Um, so 99% of our photographs come from city-employed photographers um, who are working for different city agencies. The WPA is one of our few exceptions where we accession this uh, from from a federal agency, but they were collections, or is it all by donation nope. of workers? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, we have no we know we have no acquisition budget. It's it's and and our collecting policy is really just to collect uh, the government the records created by government workers. There's a show here now from the summer of 1978 by New York Times photographers when there was a newspaper yes. strike. Yes. They went to work for the Parks Department, correct? Right. So theoretically, those photos... Theoretically, could, those photographs should be in our archive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they, and, they will be, and they will be someday. <laughs> talk a little bit about your, yeah. your conservation and storage techniques. And uh, most of these, I assume, were store, are from original film. Yeah. Uh, um, what we call medium format film now. Right. Well, um, th- in this... There was uh, a number of different uh, formats of film that the WPA photographers use. So, every, the, so we have in this show things that are originally on eight by ten negatives to thirty-five millimeter negatives, um, and everything in between. The original negatives have been in frozen storage for many years. Um, Where is the location? Where do you store them? Uh, well, our office is at Thirty-One Chambers Street. It's a surrogates court building, um, and that's where those particular negatives are stored. But we also have a warehouse uh, in Brooklyn at Industry. City, uh, where we have a little freezer farm of of uh, negative storage, but um, we're we're in the process of building out a new uh, climate controlled warehouse space out at out at Industry City um, with a big walk-in freezer box. So, which is my dream come true. So photos are still being added to this. To the collection? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. When I, I I've been there for 21 years, and when I started. We used to say we had a million photographs. We took in some other like er, huge uh, film collections, and now we have about five million photographs. And uh, are there any photos, let's say what we might call famous photos or iconic photos, that are housed and owned by the municipal archives? Something that a regular person would just recognize. Oh uh, well, I mean the the, the most iconic has got to be the uh, Eugene de Salignac photograph of the workers, the painters on the Brooklyn Bridge uh, oh, cables, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which um, so he was he was totally unknown uh, until 1999, which is actually when I discovered that collection in the archives and did the research that brought him to light and we I did a book in 2007 on him but but that photograph had been known it had been published but no again he was just an anonymous city photographer I had come from a photo editing background at Aperture and when I was looking at that collection I realized this isn't a collection this is a body of work this is all one eye one photographer 30 years you know and that was haven't made a discovery quite like that since then, but it, that was a good one. But yeah, I mean, and, and there are other other iconic images in the in the WPA collection for any, sure. Any one or two collections that really stand out as just gems? Well, that one. So that collection is the Department of Bridges, Plant, and Structures collection, which it's the same agency. They changed their name from Department of Bridges to Department of Plant and Structures at some point, but uh, and that's. 20,000 glass plate negatives and 10,000 vintage prints, and that's really a superb collection. Um, this is about 5,000 images total, um, the WPA collection, and again, another standout. Um, but we have a lot of other ones. Um, Borough President Brooklyn, right now we're digitizing the Borough President Queens collection, which is from the, uh, I think it starts in the late 20s and goes through the 40s, and it's, again, amazing, amazing collection of, of 
probably have a ton of pictures from the World's Fair from back in 64, I would imagine. We only, you know, the World's Fairs were not quite done as city projects. We have this one uh, collection that was done by a photographer who was a retired news photographer, and his daughter donated that collection to us. But but other than that, we don't have a lot of uh, city stuff. There's a fair amount of 30s World's Fair because I think because Mayor LaGuardia was heavily involved in it. Any any gaps? Any major any major gaps? Uh, you know, it's one of those things. Like right now, I don't have very we don't have very much control over what agencies are going out and photographing. And I and when I hear about the different things going on in the city of different projects, I just keep thinking, I hope some good photographers taking photographs of that. <laughs> but I I really have no control over whether that's happening. What percentage of the pictures that you've seen? really stand out to you saying these are these are exceptional photographs because a lot of them are just pictures yeah a lot a lot of the yeah right absolutely with a lot of the of those uh, municipal collections a lot of them it's just like somebody had to go out and doc and 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 shoot a photograph of this to document it and it's just straightforward you know technically may be good but but every once in a while you see a picture that makes you stop and go ooh how often does that happen the exhibit we did last year was on the HPD photographers, Housing Preservation Development, and they had three uh, really good photographers who worked for them over the years. Um, one was Larry Rassiopo, who's sort of well-known in New York photography circles, but there was another photographer, Paul Rice, uh, uh, and uh, Leonard Boykin, who, who, like, I was really surprised. I, th- I was looking at these photographs, and I was like, like, this is like a Lee Freelander. Like, you know, where did this guy come from? And why was he working for the city agency? It's called the paycheck. Called the paycheck. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And health benefits. Look, that's why I work for a city agency. Is the NYPD forensic uh, stuff in, in your Yeah, market? so I t- in 2011, uh, I helped take in the NYPD Manhattan Photography Unit Collection, which um, went from 1898 to about 1980. Ooh, wow, that's, uh, that's, that's good. It's like 140,000 images. Um, so we've just finished processing it all, and we digitized about 30,000 images, but we haven't put them all, all online yet. But there's, yeah, that's, there's, that's another amazing collection. That's, I hope that's going to be my next book project. What percentage of your uh, of the photographs you have have been digitized? Because that's a major undertaking on its own. Oh, um, well, we're we're right now we're about to complete uh, a real long-term dream of ours, which is to digitize the 1940s tax photographs, which was another WPA-sponsored project. Um, which was they went around and photographed every single building in 1939 through 1941 um, using Leicas and 35mm film uh, in the five boroughs. So it's it's over 700,000 images. Um, And we went back to the original nitrate film and uh, all the images have now been digitized. They're they're still doing QC and processing on them. And we hope by the end of the year that's going to go online and that's going to be pretty amazing. And that will put what we have digitized online close to 2 million images. So this, these, all these images are easy to access online by anybody? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we have uh, archives.nyc uh, well, or you can go to nyc.gov records and that will direct you to our, 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 our gallery. 
We are at Photoville 2018, and we are with students from the High School of Art and Design and the High School of Fashion Industries. In a little PS, I am a past graduate of the High School of Art and Design many decades ago. The focus of this show is telling a story and selling an idea, and it features students from the High School of Art and Design and the High School of Fashion Industries, and there's some amazing, wonderful black and white pictures here. Um, speaking with Ben Russell and Brandon McLaughlin, with several students to talk about this show. First, Ben, tell us a little bit about this exhibit, how it came to be, and the background to it. Okay, so Brenna and I are both high school teachers. We teach photography, and we got together and decided to collaborate on an exhibition and show our students' work uh, from two different perspectives. Uh, her students' work is uh, digital color work, and um, it's the idea of selling an idea. So our schools are CTE schools, career and technical education schools. Right. So we're teaching our students photography and art, but we're also teaching them job skills, things that they could use in a career. So her work is, is uh, focused on assignments, fashion assignments, mm -hmm. commercial editorial assignments. And then my students' work is focused more on documentary work. Uh, you know, classic kind of photojournalism work. And then the other difference is uh, her work is digital and the work for my students is black and white film photography. So my school, we're very privileged. We're one of only a few schools, public schools left in New York City where we have an actual working darkroom and uh, the students are given Pentax K1000s and as much film as they want and we teach them how to shoot and process film and make prints in the darkroom. Now, do they complain about having to shoot film? That's old-fashioned, no? Well, why don't you ask them? <laughs> <laughs> ask one of them. I'm saying, that, I'm saying that in all jest, because honestly, I think if you could learn how to shoot film, you could shoot anything, and that's the beauty of it. You learn control and everything else. It's more than point and shoot. That's really, really great. They do complain about it, though, because it's messy, there's chemicals, smell, and they get on your hands and your clothes, and it's, it's tedious, it's difficult, and it's slow. But what I found as a teacher is that the process and the tedium and the difficulty and everything results in the kids being more invested in the results. That's absolutely true. Can you talk a little bit about how you set up the, the production side of, of making these shows? We're very lucky to have a full commercial studio. Um, so half of it is a digital lab, half of it is a commercial studio, and the students utilize um, their work-based learning skills and have jobs and facilitate photo shoots where they partner with the other majors. We have um, seven other majors at our school besides photography, and some of the work that's being exhibited is collaborations between fashion students at art and design and photography students at art and design so and the students get a chance to go to a professional commercial studio and assist and, and take a look yeah, at that anyway a, yeah. our work-based learning internship program allows students to it's an application process it's a little more individualized as opposed to an entire class but they go through an application process and they we have um, professional photographers we partner with um, so they can see they can see both. I think the collaborative issue, I think that's, that's really important. We didn't have that back in the day. We photographers and there was no interaction with the other departments. Yeah, and I think if you're going into commercial work, that's really important because you don't work alone. If you're going out commercially, you are working with other people and you have to learn to collaborate. No two ways about it. We're in a moment in public education where we're moving towards group-based and project-based learning. Mm -hmm. And people are looking at art teachers to see what that looks like because it's just so natural for project-based learning to happen in the art room because so many subjects attach to it. So you can see the connections that are made between each subject area. Your name is? Erica Perez. 
Erica, so what's your background? Did you enter art and design knowing that you wanted to be in photography, or did you also come in with a different interest and after the first year of going around to all the specialties, chose photography? I came into the school wanting to go to cartooning, but after <laughs> I did a photography project during my art history class and my um, design foundation, I fell in love with photography because I love the use of composition, color, and then the editing techniques as well. Okay, and what grade are you in now? I am in my senior year. You're also a senior, and what do you want to do when you get out? What's your goal? What, what direction do you want to go in? I'm interested in being a commercial photographer, like freelance. Any, any specific type of photography? I think like maybe forensic photography Ooh, okay. would be interesting. Okay, all right. We've actually had forensic photographers on our show before. It's an interesting uh, uh, profession. That's good stuff. Um, your name is? Uh, Jacqueline Garcia Hernandez. Ah, okay. And so I go to fashion industries. Uh, okay. And so for my artwork, being someone who has families who are immigrants, I wanted to speak on that and show and demonstrate the struggles of that. Well understood. Yeah. So did you go into school intending to be a photographer or did you also have a different interest before you got into school? Uh, actually, my interest was to go into fashion industries as an artist, like physically and drawing traditionally. So when I, so when they gave me um, black and white film photography, I was kind of frustrated because I didn't want to focus on that. Yeah. But the way Mr. Russell said that, oh, this is the once in a lifetime, you're never going to get a chance to actually do this. Like, who else is going to be having a black, like a dark room in their room or somewhere else for you to do it? So I'm like, you know what, let me open up my mind to this and take a chance. And so even till now, I'm doing digital photography. I'm actually getting more into um, photography. So are you, I want still, are you still keeping up your fine art? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. You can blend the two. Yeah, I am. I'm thinking of like, oh, for some of the projects, I'm going to add like some traditional drawings onto like actual film photography. So, yeah. I'm Thais Rivera, and the school that I go to is Art and Design High School. Okay, so you're a senior also? I'm a junior. You're a junior? Yeah. Okay, all right. I'm gonna, I have to find, did you, did you enter Art and Design thinking you were going to be a photographer, or did you also come with a different specialty? Um, I thought I was going to go into cartooning or architecture, <laughs> but then when we were in freshman year, when we were doing our design foundation course, yeah. we would, um, you know, take in the courses of every major that was in the school, and once we did the photography project, I was like, oh my, I sort of like this, Ding. maybe I could do this. Ding, yep, like, yep, yep. a bell ringed in my head, and I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to pursue in that. <laughs> that's great. That's can I, wonderful. Can I ask a so, so, so the uh, the photo that we're looking at here is that's kind of a light spiral. I'll call it uh, light painting, maybe. What was the task that was presented to you? So, Miss McLaughlin was teaching us was to study the emphasis of motion, and so what I decided to do was use light painting as a way to describe um, motion. So, <laughs> and how many takes did you get to get the shot? One. No way. Yeah. My, my dad was helping me hold down the shutter open so it would time the spiral that the lights were going in. What kind of light is it? Um, I just decided, because a light stick is very expensive nowadays, and I decided to get a wooden stick and some fairy lights from Michael's, and I taped it all together, and then I just spun it in a circle. <laughs> creativity. All right, beautiful. What cameras are you guys using? Um, we're using Canon Rebels. Canon Rebels? Yeah. 
Okay. We're speaking with Simona Islam. Hi, nice to meet you. So tell us about your work. Um, my pictures are mostly based on family. So the first one, I have my sister. And the other one, I have my grandmother. This one is one of my favorite that I've done because it represents my culture. My sister, she's, she was getting ready for a modeling job and she was representing our culture, which is Bangladesh. She was making traditional jewelry and I just thought I'd like to capture the moment. That's great. Did, now, did you enter school thinking about photography? Was that your goal or did you also have a different specialty before you? No, I didn't have any specific different specialties. I knew that I wanted to do something that made me feel good and that was sending a message out to the world and I wanted to get into journalism and so when I got into photography I was looking more into photojournalism and that's what I'm heading towards currently. All right well you got a good start here you got a very good eye nice compositions and all that too it's very good nice thanks guys thank you so much Okay, we are in another container. This one has a new theme. It's called Consequences. Uh, and we're with Pablo Farias and Isaac Guzman. And uh, nice to have you guys. There's some amazingly strong black and white imagery here. Can you gentlemen tell us about what we're looking at here? Sure, absolutely. So uh, Consequences is an exhibit about the history of photography in Chiapas in the south of Mexico and how it connects the traditional... Uh, film and silver gelatin uh, uh, printing uh, work that historically has been so important in Mexico going back decades uh, to the more current digitally based uh, uh, photography use for creating stories about uh, community events and uh, building memory and the capacity for uh, connecting people to uh, the events uh, in their surroundings. So uh, photographers in Mexico uh, have taken on this tradition of many years of uh, uh, work in photography and adapted it and adopted it uh, to make it part of their storytelling and creation of visual narratives. And what we wanted was to show how uh, significant this connection is in Chiapas, which is the lowest income state in Mexico, a mostly indigenous uh, state, uh, very much in the uh, history of the Mayan people uh, in, in Mexico, and uh, one that has had a long trajectory of uh, traveler photography. So, you know, going back to the 1840s, not with photography, but with the illustrations that uh, Stephens and Catherwood did of the Mayan uh, ruins that right. were here in Madison Square Garden in, in the late 1840s when people would go into these uh, uh, large-scale dioramas to visit the world before uh, international traveling happened to the photos of Morley in the 1880s that were all uh, in uh, glass negative uh, 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 large format cameras. And uh, so many photographers of the 20th century that as travelers photographed the indigenous lives, the culture, the, uh, the, the uh, very dramatic imagery of uh, the tropical areas and the Mayan culture of Mexico. But uh, building from that, we wanted to show how much people have adopted photography and have really uh, created a culture of photography that is rooted in community. And that uh, with digital photography now, it becomes so much more accessible. 
And uh, so people like Baruch Santi, are, uh, an indigenous woman from a social Maya community uh, in Chiapas, is using photography to explore the changes in the traditions and culture of her uh, uh, social uh, indigenous community. Tragameluz, uh, which is a collective of photographers, and Isaac can speak more to that because he's part of Tragameluz, is uh, using uh, photography uh, to create uh, a collective sense of how social change is developing in Mexico. And of course, Jose Angel Rodriguez, who was for many years uh, an assistant and a student of Manuel Álvarez Bravo, the best-known, iconic yeah. Mexican photographer, and continues to print the work of Álvarez Bravo in Mexico, working for his archive, uh, brings the learning that he uh, developed working with Álvarez Bravo and other Mexican photographers to Chiapas to a new generation of photographers. How, uh, when, when was this collection brought together initially? You said that it goes back over 100 years, a lot of these images. Well, this, these images, no. These images go back to the 1980s. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and there are how many photographers represented here today about it? About, well, 10, if one counts the, the Tragameluz Collective. So it's two photographers, the portfolios of them, Jose Angel Rodriguez, the black and white silver gelatin prints, mm -hmm. uh, Maruch Santis uh, with her prints of uh, traditional knowledge and culture, and then the Tragameluz Collective, which is uh, eight photographers uh, out of a collective group that uh, is more contemporary. And Tragameluz is a collective of photographers from Chiapas working to kind of uh, represent their own community. Is that fair to say? Yeah, uh, one of the main reasons that the collective um, began is to share photography in public spaces. Uh, the proposal was 17 years ago to take the photographs to the streets uh, besides galleries. So that's how begin began the collective. And who started it? Was it yourself or a group of people? No, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly new in the collective. I have five years now, but there are friends that are, they started it. Uh, one of the things that we have is that the collective is really open, and one of the main compromises that we have is to do pictures with the people, not, not just of the people, and that's how we work. We work like, and we recognize ourselves as a free media, kind of, as you know, in Mexico, you may know there are a lot of um, people that work for uh, specific uh, newspapers or agencies, but we work from uh, the community. Uh, our work is more based in social problems and also on things that need to do with uh, politics and art, of course. Um, we are showing here uh, eight of us, but we really are 20, around 20 members of the collective. And it's, uh, you know, it's a huge diversity of the people that works with the collective. Can you give us a couple of examples of some positive uh, outcomes from people seeing these photographs? Because taking pictures and showing them is terrific, but is there anything concrete you could point to that has come about because of these photographs? Yeah, from my point of view is that a lot of people like the idea of doing photography with many people. 
um, they practice of photography as a collective is kind of, it's not new, but uh, is in Mexico a way to do it, we believe, because as you may know, the process of doing a news or uh, being a photojournalist in Mexico is every day more dangerous. Yeah. So working as a collective, it gives you a more safeness and also give you different views that you can uh, work on a theme and work uh, differently, you know. Uh, actually, most of the uh, members of the collective, uh, we are, you know, I recognize myself as a documentary photographer, but uh, some of my friends, they do other things besides photography. They use photography with the people, but we have like paramedics, nurses, and writers. So there is a huge diversity in the collective, and that's the richness of the collective. How, how did uh, how do you guys get the Photoville? Well, so we created this platform called Batsy Lab. We recognize that photographers have a, a challenge in terms of how to get their work out and that more resources were needed in order to help them organize portfolios, help them print, help them prepare their work and have it uh, not only be present in Facebook or in Instagram, but be physically present as photographs. So we, uh, Isaac and I started this platform uh, two years ago, Batsy Lab, and uh, set up a, a, both a printing lab, a digital printing lab, and a dark room uh, 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 analog printing, so to speak, and uh, have organized a set of exhibits and prepared photo books. So we uh, basically work with the photographers to help put their work out in print and form. Is it, is it fair to say, I think you did answer it earlier, but in general, that the, 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 the fundamental point of, of the collective and of consequencias is to get the image of Chiapas out but from the point of view of people from Chiapas. Yes, that that's, a, that's a good... Uh, As opposed to all the images we've seen over the past 25 years right. of, of the poverty and the strife and the war that's going on. Yeah, that's, I think that that's really important. Like from, I mean, even though they, the participants are not uh, born in Chiapas, but they've been living in Chiapas you know, since many years. So they are attached to the context. So what we believe is that it's really important to show um, the work from photographers that live in Chiapas, that live the reality that we live there, you know. Uh, I think that we, we kind of... Is there a good amount of indigenous photographers as well? Or yeah, yeah. Actually, in our collective, there are some of the uh, members that are indigenous. Uh, yeah. Are most of these photographs digital or, f or analog? Because I would imagine anal film in developing is... That's kind of exotic where you're working. Uh, well, yes, it is, but uh, I would say, I mean, all of the photographs of Jose Angel are analog. They're film uh, okay. uh, photographs uh, developed by uh, Jose Angel and Isaac and printed in the darkroom. And these are all uh, silver gelatin prints. So one-third of what is here is the, uh, completely analog film photography and printed in silver gelatin. The rest is digital. Uh, okay. okay. Uh, um, and um, can we speak? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Vanessa Crowley is here also. Can you uh, speak to your role in this uh, project, please? Sure. I just recently um, got on board with Pablo and Isaac. And um, basically, since they're mostly based in Chiapas, they wanted some feet on the ground in New York. And I did my master's thesis in Chiapas about five years ago and um, studied anthropology and human rights and I've just been really interested in how 
many different layers there are to tell of the story of Chiapas through every single generation. And there's just been a lot of um, polarized views and a lot of, a, as Pablo was saying, a reclaiming of the indigenous um, narrative there and sort of celebrating, but also trying to adapt that narrative into the way Mexico is evolving as a nation. Were you aware? Were you familiar with their work when you were there working on your uh, degree? I was. I was familiar with Tragamelus. I know. I know a bunch of people there. Okay. Yeah. And how's it been? How's Vaudeville been? Uh, pretty interesting. Like uh, we didn't know how to expect with um, you know like the result of the um, the people looking at the pictures because the pictures are not uh, pretty are more uh, document, you know. Um, some of them are really strong in the sense of what they represent. So we were, you know... Uh, uh, we stand corrected. Many of them are very strong. <laughs> Looking around, you're not so many. <laughs> yeah. So um, we didn't know how to expect, you know, how the people will be... Uh, receiving. Yeah. So, but so far, it's so interesting that uh, we are uh, having connections with people that uh, are interested in Chiapas. And some of them, they just remember places or even though photographers that are in this exhibition. So it has been really amazing, you know. I guess I'd just say that Chiapas is a place that if you've been there, it really takes a hold of you. And so the people that, you know, have come by that have had any sort of contact with the region are just so excited to see the stories here in New York. We believe in the power of the image as an element to, that has been shaping our reality in the sense of the memory. Um, you know, I have learned from Jose Angel uh, to print and from his photos, from his history. So that's the image that, uh, you know, connected us. And we are connected now with this project and we trying to connect more people with uh, pictures, with photographs with history. Yeah, Photobill is a great opportunity for us, uh, working in Chiapas to connect to the larger world of photography. That's why we came, that's why we organized this exhibit, because we, we know here in New York there's such a, a strength of organizations and work in photography, and we think that it's worth for people to know about what's happening down in the south of Mexico, not just in Mexico City, but also for folks down there to connect to the organizations and uh, the uh, activity of photography in New York. Understood. That's a good job here. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the BH Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at BH Photo Video, hashtag BH Photo Podcast. Okay, we're speaking with Ron Haviv and Lauren Walsh of the Seven Project, and uh, the pictures here are pretty startling. Um, Who'd like to tell us about them? I'll give you a little overview of the film, and then Ron can give you some background. Um, So it's a film about two photographs. One was taken in Panama in 1989. The other one was taken in Bosnia in 1992. And they are both photographs by Ron. Um, one depicts, in the, a Panama photograph depicts an elected vice president being beaten by a paramilitary thug of the then dictator Noriega. And the other photograph from Bosnia depicts three Serbian paramilitary 
soldiers standing over the bodies of three people who have, three civilians who have just been executed. So both photographs are the most iconic um, in the part of the world where they were taken, so that's Latin America and the Balkans. And we were, became really interested in understanding um, what happens to a photograph after it leaves the camera, um, and especially what happens to a photograph that is the most iconic in its part of the world. What kind of life does it lead? What kind of impact does it have? And it turns out that they have enormous impact in many spheres of society. So they filter, they start as journalism and then they move into art, they move into propaganda, they move into education, they move into kind of commercialized kitsch as well. They take on a life of their own. Absolutely, right. they lead lives, own. yeah. Um, so let me let Ron tell you some background about the moments when he took those photographs and then follow up. We're standing here in the, the container of the Seven Foundation, which has multiple projects, one of which is supporting biography of a photo, this documentary about these two photographs. And basically, the photograph from Panama sort of launched my career. It was my first foreign assignment. It was my first experience in conflict. And this photograph wound up on the cover of, of Time Magazine, Newsweek, and U.S. News all in the same week and immediately had um, some impact. But it was not really until the United States invaded Panama seven months later, where the real impact was seen when the President of the United States spoke about the photograph as one of the reasons for the invasion that took place, which as far as we know is probably one of the few times where a photograph was referenced in a military action by by the United States. And what was really interesting as we were doing this film, we interviewed the current president of Panama, and he said to us that this photo has an impact that gave Panamanians back its democracy, which is like an incredible thing to say about, about a photograph. And then on the photograph from Bosnia, this was the first real photographic evidence of what later became known as ethnic cleansing in the civil war in Bosnia. And very quickly, this photograph became a symbol for the Bosnians. They used it as a recruiting tool for people to come and fight on their behalf. And eventually, when the International Criminal Tribunal was used to indict war criminals, this photograph has been used in multiple trials to indict and convict war criminals. And so today, now, 26 years after the photograph was taken, the daughter of one of the women that's lying dead in the photograph is using this photograph as the sole piece of evidence to indict the three men in the photograph. And one of the men, the man with his foot back with a cigarette and sunglasses, is actually a famous techno DJ in Belgrade. So they're really trying very hard to, uh, to get him indicted. Wow. And what about the other two? They... The other two are, are said to be policemen. So everybody's alive, everybody's still there, and she feels, even though this photograph has convicted the politicians and the commanders, the actual foot soldiers, no one has been indicted yet. So the daughter wants there to be justice for her, for her lost family. I gotta ask you one question. You, you said that this photograph, the one taken in Panama, is, was your first combat experience, or? or it's my first foreign trip, my first trip uh, involving tear gas and bullets and so on, yeah. When you hit the shutter, did you understand what you had captured there and what was going through your mind? Because I personally don't know how I would be reacting to that. Well, this is the day, this is the elected vice president. The election results had been nullified the day before. They, he and the other victors came out onto the streets to start an uprising. So I had an understanding a little bit of what was going on, but in the chaos and what was going on, and actually when he was eventually dragged out of the car, he's covered in blood. Some of the blood is his, but most of the blood is from his bodyguard who was killed trying to protect him. I didn't even recognize who he was. So I was just sort of following the moment. So I didn't really understand uh, what was going on. And in the beginning, for me, it was very exciting. 
as a career. I got the cover of the magazines. Nobody knew who I was. But really, when the United States president spoke about the picture, I started to understand the role of photography and the fact that we can play a part in conversation, play a part in giving information for people to make decisions. It wasn't whether or not I agreed with the invasion. It was that understanding that my photograph played a role in that process, which I found incredibly fascinating. Can I ask you, and I, the, these photos have a life, but they have a life inside you too, right, for these years. What, over the years, have, have you thought of these photos, and how often do you go back to them, either, either you know, I, I, you made a movie about them, but like physically, and to look at them, or even mentally, to think about these photos, and how much, how big a part of your own photo career do you think of them, professionally, but also uh, internally, in, in the weight of photography, and the role that the photos play? Well, professionally, I'm tied and connected to these photographs. And the photographs have, since they've been taken, are published, I would say, at least every month, if not um, more, since they've been published in, in various ways. Um, the photographs, in fact, the photograph in Panama um, has been adopted by the country where the, my credit doesn't even appear, it just says archive, and it's published freely, and similar to the photograph in Bosnia. So I'm, I'm proud of that connection, but the, the, the personal was very much in that the first photograph taken in 1989, when I saw the impact that it had, I, not being completely naive, but a little bit more believing that photography can help and can play a role. Three years later, when the other photograph was taken and the same administration in the U.S. was in power, and this photograph, I felt, was visual evidence of what was going to happen if the world didn't intervene, and the photograph was completely ignored. And then I started to understand that sometimes the photograph can't do anything, but it has these other lives, and has this other ability to have impact, which is what we explore in the film. So there's both kind of personal hope for photography in this work, but also reality, and also the understanding that it's up to um, people like myself and Seven and other people to continue to remind people about what the power of photography can be. And so in Biography of a Photo, while it is about my photographs, the film really does talk about this amazing power of photography and what, what can happen with, with images. Have you ever been frustrated with how it's been construed or how it's been used by the powers that be? You know, one of your photos? When Russia invaded Ukraine a few years ago, um, a, very, a very powerful Russian uh, blogger took this photograph, changed the caption, said that the, assailant, the aggressors were Ukrainian and the victims were Russians. And the photograph went viral all over all over Russia. Millions of people. Fake, fake news. It was complete fake. fake news. And I was like, oh my God, I put out a statement, but I had no reach to this audience. And it was quite amazing, you know, the, the way that photography can play a role today. And all these years later, and uh, you've shot many conflict zones since then, do you still feel the, the strength of what you can do? Do you still feel a, a positive impact? I don't want to say positive impact, but do you still feel what you're doing is worthwhile? Absolutely. I think there's without question, still power in the photographers that are working today, whether myself or others working in Syria, Iraq, or so on, because even though in our world of oversaturation of images, the really powerful images, important images, eventually wind up to the top. And most importantly, even if they're ignored in terms of kind of having impact immediately, photographs stand as evidence, they stand as a record, and they stand to hold us all accountable for our actions and our inactions. And I think they're always going to be very, very important to the documentation of, of human history. So you think the truth prevails eventually? 
eventually it will come out, eventually it will have impact. A lot of the work that you see here in the container has been in incorporated in curriculum in high schools and other places, so visual elements are very, very important. Well, tell me about the movie and when we can find it, where we can find it, and if it'll be released in theaters. Yeah, um, the film is in progress. It'll be out next year, 2019, and you can watch the trailer on biographyofaphoto.com. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are at the container of the Authority Collective, and we are speaking with... My name is Mary Kang. I'm part of the Authority Collective board member. And my name is Elaine Cromie, also a board member of the Authority Collective. My name's Arlene Mejorado, and I'm part of the Lit List 30. So Authority Collective is a group of women, femmes, trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people of color reclaiming their authority in photography, film, and VR, AR industries. Our mission is to empower marginalized artists with resources and community and to take action against systemic, systemic and individual abuses in the world of lens-based editorial, documentary, and commercial visual work. So you got together about a year ago in Los Angeles, and from there, what, you, you've created this group, all right? And where'd you go from there? How did you, what happened between that meeting and us meeting here in a container in Brooklyn? So one of the original founding board members, uh, their name is Oriana Corin, and this was their idea. The Lit List was part of their idea. So on that journey from when, when the group was first founded till now, um, Oriana had um, put out a call for uh, underrepresented, uh, marginalized photographers, and that's how we have the lit list. And so it's a group of, it's a show of 30 photographers, um, and it's, that was probably one of the biggest, uh, the biggest actions or biggest uh, works of stuff from the Authority Collective, or one of our larger... Um, Project. Yeah, it was one of it was a goal of ours this year. So since it's been our first year, we've really set um, just a couple things in mind to try to get to try to get going and to be sustainable after the first year. And so the lit list is one of them. Um, we had um, we had a talk in, at Mopla in LA, the month of photography in LA, at the beginning of the year. And I think we're just trying to build community as our as our one of our biggest things that we're trying to do between first forming and now the show the show seems to be sort of stylistically pretty diverse yeah so I think Arlene can probably speak more about her reasoning behind what photos that she chose uh, yes so um, being a part of the lit list 30 uh, it was interesting because it did bring together photographers that are stylistically very different that are pursuing different areas of the field. So there are some that are more editorial, photojournalists. Um, I myself am a photojournalist, so um, I appreciated that there was like this space where um, you know a collective exists that is kind of like a cheerleader or like a hype man, like something that we maybe didn't know we needed to back us up or to to be behind us as we're like trying to you know make it in our the industry and also as we're like trying to build the I guess confidence to tell our stories also in a in a culture that maybe doesn't um, let us be uh, centered or you know often we're like more on the periphery or on the sidelines so um, something like Authority Collective really helps to bring that language to just like center ourselves and create stories and also have an avenue 
for having our work actually seen. Um, and I think for me, like if Authority Collective hadn't existed, I don't know if I would have been a part of Photoville, um, being from Los Angeles and just so like, it's nice to have this access to like the New York photo community, which I know respects photography very much. and. Um, and to be able to meet all of these photographers from all over the world and and also be able to connect and find a little bit of that like comfort in like identifying with each other and saying oh yeah I'm going through the same kinds of struggles I'm not the only one and like it breaks up that um, isolation that we can experience as uh, photographers women of color and so yeah can I ask you have you uh, had your photo shown at all prior to this, or is it the first experience? Um, I have had a photography, my photography shown. I've had a solo exhibit. Um, I've shown at the Charlie James Gallery in LA, um, galleries in Texas. Uh, but this is my first time showing my work in New York. And um, that's a big deal, because I've always looked to New York for a lot of my photo references. and. Um, and a lot of my favorite photographers are from New York. And so I think um, also being new to the industry, like now that I've been coming to New York more and like going to places like the Open Society or like, you know, learning more about Magnum photographers or um, the International Center of Photography, like I'm really starting to understand how, how our work can reach a level of respect that it, I think, deserves. That we, you know, that um, we can have access to these really great spaces. And so Photoville's a nice, been a nice bridge for that so far. Can you anybody here point to anything concrete that has come to fruition since you've come together and started doing this body of work? Um, for me, I feel like I've been getting contacted with more assignments. So it's get, letting me work and it's bringing income and it's bringing opportunities. So um, maybe it's not directly correlated, but I did notice that when the lit list was published that right away I started getting um, more emails from uh, different um, uh, media platforms and news sources that have asked me to do assignments. and. Like uh, you were saying, there's it's not just people, uh, it's not necessarily people that look like me, but in general, just having the opportunity to tell all kinds of stories, um, because I don't only want to photograph people that look like me or tell stories that are of mine, because I think that's pointless. Like I want to be uh, try to find a way to be a mirror for the world and um, be a storyteller, a visual storyteller. So like you were saying, a lot of all the work here is technically sound. It's very talented photographers. Not just um, technically, but creatively sound. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And definitely creatively sound. And um, but it's exciting. It's like you know uh, uh, these new voices and emerging uh, storytellers. And um, I think the work in here is very dynamic and vivid. And cool. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you guys so Thank much. You so Thank much. you so much. Yeah. Thank you. We're with Krista, and the show here is probably one of the more interesting ones. It's called Internal Ballistics. Could you explain what we're looking at here? Because this is different. Sure. It's three different artists looking at the object and impact of bullets. Instead of uh, talking about guns, which is so commonly done, I'm talking about what comes out of the gun instead, sort of flipping the idea on its head to talk about gun control. Okay. Um, what was the seed of this? There was an interesting cup of coffee that was, this was hatched over, I'm assuming. In, in 2014, there was a mass shooting that uh, got me started thinking about how I could talk about what happens emotionally and physically 
when a shooting happens? Instead of talking about the guns, which we get immune to, how do we talk about the impact of what happens through that? And this is what came up with that. Deborah Bay's work, I, I have three artists here in the container. Deborah Bay, who's one of my represented artists, had created the series called Big Bang, and those are bullets that are being fired into bulletproof plexiglass. So we started with that. We added Sabine Perlman's cross-sections of bullets so that we could see the actual objectness of the bullet. And then Garrett Hansen created shooting targets, replicas of shooting targets, etched into mirrors. So not only could we look at ourselves, but we could see where we would lose our lives if we were shot at because the holes in the targets are our heart and our head. And I think it's important to note that there is zero bloodshed or gore in this. Exactly. It's metaphorical. Um, in some ways, it's beautiful. In many ways, it's beautiful. And disturbing all at the same time. It allows you an entryway to be able to think about what exactly happens at the end of that bullet. Do you think most people get that? What, I mean, when people walk in here, do you see horror or do you see awe in their face? I see a little bit of everything. There are people that really understand it, really get it, and are really impacted by it. There are people that are more curious about it. There are people that try to talk their way out of it. There are more people that question my decision whether I am a pro-Second Amendment or anti-Second Amendment person. I could see that confusion. Yeah, I could see yeah. that. So it... Uh, it becomes an interesting conversation, and that's all really I'm asking for. It's a dialogue. Okay, you're creating a dialogue. Exactly. Uh, because it's certainly inviting. When you walk by here, it's almost, it's very inviting. It's, it's decorative. It's almost, this is almost a celebration. And even the bullets are works of art, especially when you line them all up, the different projectiles, the shapes and everything. It's a science. It's an art. It's architecture almost. Mm-hmm. But then you realize what it is. Right. We actually have Deborah Bay ah. here. Who's happy to talk about the work as well? And you, okay. you did the plexiglass or the... Right, the, the bullets that were captured in the plexiglass and bulletproof plexiglass. Uh, okay. What, what made you... What was the seed of that for you? What made you think about that? What brought this project well, to fruition? actually just buying plexiglass, you know, like to do some framing, and they had a little display with some bulletproof... Well, they just to demonstrate how effective bulletproof plexiglass could be, and so they were, like three or four different kinds of bullets that had been shot into the plastic and then captured there. And so there were all these interesting trajectory lines and you could see the, uh, you know, the shattered pieces of plastic that were captured within the panel. And I thought, well, that's just visually so interesting. And then, you know, once you think of what it actually is and see the damage that it can wreak, you know, when you imagine something like that hitting muscle and bone versus, you know, being... Uh, in the middle of a uh, sheet of hard plexiglass. It was really very compelling. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, so did you, from there, did you actually commission or did you actually take pieces of this plexi and fire different caliber shells into it? Or did you just happen to have access to well, people who've been shooting uh, plexi? <laughs> that was actually, did take, took a while to figure out logistically how I was going to do that. And it turned out it worked out really well because I ended up calling... Um, the police academy at, at one of the local community colleges in Houston and 
uh, the head of the operation there said, well, come on out and we'll talk about it. And so they had access to a lot of different kinds of guns and ammunition that, you know, probably regular people wouldn't have because some of them are actually, you know, assault bullets and things like that. So it was uh, was really an interesting You don't experience. want to mess around with bullets and plexiglass like this because it could come back at you. Uh, definitely, yeah. That's what I was curious about. Okay. <laughs> no, whenever I give talks, I do tell them, don't try this at home. <laughs> Can I ask a question? Um, uh, Wall Space is based out of California, it correct? Is. Can you explain how uh, the process worked to, to come to Photoville? Did you apply? And did apply. how did that process work briefly? Uh, well, I have been a fan of Photoville for years now, and I'd wanted to find a way to come and showcase work. Uh, earlier this year with the Parkland shooting, we wanted to bring up this topic again, since we had shown this now four years ago. So the submission period for Photoville was open, so I submitted the project uh, to Photoville and went through their review process, chatted with them on the phone, and then they sent me a note saying that I'd been accepted to Photoville, to the village. Cool. So you get a sense of damage with the plexiglass types, but in terms of the, the innards of the bullets, is it more showing like the potential damage? Or what were you trying to get at? There? One of the big questions that comes up always when uh, people look at the uh, the actual cross sections are: Are they real? Right. Because the concept of a bullet is just powder and a projectile. There's no knowledge of the fact that so many bullets can be designed so many different ways to do so many different things to maim and kill in different ways. So this is more an objectness to show and display just how much science and effort and, and control we try to take in generating that one object of killing. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thanks to all of the photographers and organizers we spoke to and to the folks that continue to put together this wonderful photography festival. For John, Jason, and myself, thank you so much for tuning in today.